Chapter 17 In the fall of 2001, I came to a very big revelation. Why couldn't I have fun in a band like I was having in the Hamptons every summer? I had it once before with Playground, and that's exactly what I wanted again. The business and egos in Valentine Smith were really a bummer to be around day in and day out. I wanted to have fun playing my drums again. I wasn't sure exactly what that meant, but I knew that I needed a side project away from Valentine Smith to fulfill the fun side of my music career. My plan was to stay with Valentine Smith and basically wait it out to see if it hit big. But in the meantime, I would find another band that I would have fun playing with. The hunt began. I immediately went back to my tried and true place to find bands, the music papers. This time it would be the Village Voice. I wasn't exactly sure what I was looking for, but I was hoping I'd recognize it when I saw it. After flipping through the papers for a few minutes, I saw an ad that I had to read twice to believe. It said, Kiss Tribute Band, doing Creatures of the Night Era Kiss, looking for drummer to be Eric Carr. This was no mere coincidence. This was fate. Something I truly believe in, along with the idea that things happen for a reason. This was one of those times. What were the chances of me looking in the village voice that day and finding a KISS band looking for a drummer to be Eric Carr? I'd never heard of or seen any tribute band doing Eric Carr. I called the phone number immediately and spoke to a guy named Ruby. Ruby Renexo was ace freely in the band KISS Nation. He explained to me that they were looking for a full-time drummer and that they had a few shows coming up rather quickly. He was very matter-of-fact and to the point, dare I say, business-like, which I found a little odd because at the time I thought a tribute band was just for fun. He told me he'd email me a song list that I would need to have ready for the audition. The next day, I received three different emails from Ruby, each containing a different group of about 12 songs. I responded to the emails and asked him which of these song groups he wanted me to learn for the audition. He replied that I should learn all of them just to be safe. He explained that because Kiss Nation was doing Eric Carr and the Creatures of the Night era of Kiss, they needed to know a lot of oddities from the Kiss catalog. Because Kiss had so many different versions of their songs, be it on live albums, studio, or greatest hits, I asked Ruby what versions he wanted me to learn. He replied, whenever possible, learn the KISS Animalize Uncensored video versions. I couldn't believe that's what they wanted. I knew that video like the back of my hand. Every little lick and fill that Eric Carr did on that video, I'd probably played a thousand times. Like I said, it was fate. Getting ready for the KISS Nation audition was not only super fun, but very exciting. There wasn't much I loved to do more than playing Kiss songs. I rehearsed a few times at the Valentine Smith studio in Hoboken, and as I was playing the songs, I couldn't help but imagine what it would feel like playing these songs in Kiss makeup and costume. After two rehearsals, I was more than ready. I knew this gig was mine. I was set to meet the guys in Kiss Nation at Funkadelic Studios on West 40th Street in Manhattan. When I arrived... I saw two guys standing in the hallway chatting. I knew right away it was the guys from Kiss Nation. Ruby was Asian and had the exact same demeanor as Ace. The same hair as Ace 
and he even stood with his legs in a weird twisted pose, just like I'd seen pictures of how Ace stood. There was also a Puerto Rican-looking guy standing next to Ruby with a giant afro. He looked just like Gene Simmons, even without makeup. His name was Carlos Espada. It was a little weird and surreal at the time. I loved Eric Carr, but I didn't go around my everyday life looking like him. Did these guys actually study Aces and Gene's mannerisms and incorporate them into their everyday life? I wasn't sure, but I wanted to find out more. Ruby said, Hey, we are about to audition another guy before you. Can you wait in the hallway while we play a few songs with him? I waited and listened behind the door. After a song or two, I could tell the guy was a decent drummer, but he wasn't playing anything like Eric Carr. I knew the ins and outs of everything Eric did, and this guy wasn't doing any of them. I was extremely confident at this point. After about 25 minutes, the door opened and Ruby waved me in. The other drummer was packing up while Ruby introduced me to their Paul Stanley. He had bright fluorescent red hair and said with a thick Brooklyn accent, Hey, I'm Paul Z. Once I was set up and ready to go, I asked Ruby, What song do you want to start with? I had all 36 songs Ruby asked me to learn down pat, and I could fire any one of them off first. Ruby paused for a minute and said, Let's do Strutter. I actually began to laugh out loud. I said to Ruby, just so you know, Strutter was not on the list of 36 songs you gave me. I do know it, but I just wanted to tell you that. I was kind of annoyed. Carlos then laughingly yelled at Ruby, you gave him 36 songs to learn? What are you, nuts? Paulie began to laugh, and seconds later, Ruby and I joined in. I played the infamous drum intro to Strutter, and we were off. I could tell they were immediately impressed. Even though I didn't practice this particular song for the audition, I knew all of the little differences in how Eric Carr played it compared to how Peter Chris played it on the drums. We barreled through four or five more songs, and I was having a blast. These guys sounded like Kiss. The singer Paulie Z sounded like Paul Stanley. Carlos sang just like Gene Simmons. And Ruby played guitar very sloppily, just like Ace. Carlos then said, Hey, let's finish with Black Diamond. This was the one thing I was a little worried about. Up until this point, I didn't do a lot of background singing in any of my bands. I'd done some, but definitely not a lead vocal like Black Diamond. It was a pretty hard song to simultaneously play and sing. I'd rehearsed it, but I didn't have access to Valentine Smith's PA system, so I couldn't rehearse singing it with a microphone. Ruby then said, We are doing the big ending like on Kiss Animalize Uncensored. Do you know it? The way he asked me always felt like he assumed I didn't know that version and was trying to catch me off guard. I responded, Yes, I know it. He looked surprised and tried to explain more about what he meant like he couldn't believe I'd learned that version. I quickly cut him off and said, I know that version, and then began giving him an example of the tom-tom pattern at the end. Carlos smiled and looked at Ruby and said, Yep, that's it, all right. While playing Black Diamond, I remembered thinking to myself, Wow, Joe, you sound a lot like Eric singing this song right now. I'd never heard myself sing Black Diamond before, and it wasn't half bad. 
The song is naturally a little bit out of my range, but Eric would always growl through a lot of it, and I was able to mimic that pretty well. After the audition, the guys seemed pretty happy, but were trying not to let on. All they said was, thanks, we'll let you know. All I could do was smirk to myself. I knew that I had the gig. There was no way they were going to find a drummer that could play as much like Eric Carr as me. I thought to myself, I guess even in the tribute band world, people had egos. Sure enough, the next day I got the call from Ruby to ask me to join Kiss Nation. Even though I was still with Valentine Smith, I accepted. This was September 2001, shortly after the 9-11 World Trade Center attack. Kiss Nation was Paulie Z, rhythm guitar vocals, Carlos Espada, bass vocals, Ruby Renexo, lead guitar vocals, and Joey Casada, drums vocals. My first Kiss Nation show was only a few weeks away on Halloween night at the Big Easy on 2nd Avenue and 92nd Street in New York. Musically, I was more than ready, but I still hadn't tried to put on the infamous Kiss makeup. When I was a kid, I was Ace Frehley and Gene Simmons for Halloween, and then I wore Peter Chris's makeup for my 6th grade talent show, but I'd never applied the makeup on my own, and I had no idea how I would apply Eric Carr's makeup or how I would look with it. Carlos said that I could use their old drummer's costume and boots, and Paulie said he had a wig for me to use. Once we loaded in, set up, and sound checked, it was time for me to attempt putting on my makeup. Carlos sent me a list a few days earlier on what makeup I should buy. He told me Kiss Nation used the same exact makeup that Kiss used. I thought that was very cool and I was more than excited to go shopping to get it. I purchased a tub of Clown White, Ben Nye Black, and Ben Nye Red. I also purchased a few eyeliner pencils that Carlos suggested to draw the outline of the makeup. I wasn't sure what brush to buy, so I bought an array of different sizes just in case. Once we began to apply the makeup, Carlos was the only one to give me any pointers on the right way to apply it. I was assuming that they would all help me a little bit to make sure it looked perfect. Paulie seemed to be in his own world, and Ruby had an attitude as if saying, let him figure it out by himself. Nobody taught or helped me. This was exactly the type of stuff I was trying to get away from by joining Kiss Nation. I was applying Eric Carr's Kiss makeup and was about to do a two-hour show of Kiss songs. Nothing could spoil my mood. When I finished applying the makeup and put my wig on, I looked in the mirror and couldn't believe my eyes. I looked just like Eric. It was actually a little creepy how much I looked like him. The other guys in the band couldn't believe it either. We blistered through an amazing two-plus-hour set filled with Kiss classics and some rare cuts. It was exhilarating to play the songs I grew up idolizing. I had found my new outlet to once again enjoy playing my drums. After the gig, we all loaded our gear to the sidewalk in front of the club. Paulie had a van and he would be transporting it for us. He would be taking me to the Valentine Smith studio in Hoboken. After about 20 minutes of waiting for Paulie to return from getting the van, we started to wonder what could be taking him so long. We called his phone to make sure everything was alright, but it started ringing in a bag that was sitting next to our gear. Carlos then said, That jig probably fell asleep again. Carlos called everyone jig. Fell asleep? 
What do you mean he fell asleep, I said confused. Carlos went on to explain that Paulie had a little bit of narcolepsy. I still couldn't quite grasp what he was saying. Did he fall asleep walking? Did he sit down on the curb to take a nap? I just couldn't wrap my head around someone falling asleep when he knew we were waiting for him on the sidewalk to pick up our gear. After another half an hour, we decided we should split up and go look for him. We left one of the Kiss Nation roadies, Vic, to watch the gear. We began to comb the streets and search for either Paulie passed out in the street or at least maybe his van. After another 30 minutes of searching the streets of Uptown Manhattan, Carlos called me on my cell to tell me that he had found Paulie and the van. He was sleeping with thick white smoke pouring from the engine and filling the inside of the van. If Carlos hadn't found him, he would have probably suffocated. All of this was going on while he was fast asleep snoring in the driver's seat, like nothing happened. This was my very first experience with Paulie Z, and the night was far from over. Paulie and Carlos returned with the van and we finally loaded up the gear around 4 a.m. Carlos and Ruby didn't even seem that annoyed or surprised. This kind of thing had obviously happened before. They both had very minimal gear that they would leave in Paulie's van until the next gig. After they loaded theirs into the van, they hailed a cab with Vic the roadie and they were on their way home. Unfortunately, my adventure with Paulie Z had just begun. Paulie and I were now off to Hoboken to drop off my drums. We jumped on the FDR Drive at 92nd Street and were on our way. About 20 blocks into our trip, thick white smoke once again began to pour out of the engine. Paulie frantically tried to pull over, but there wasn't much room on the FDR. We finally were able to get off at the 61st Street exit. We barely made it off the exit when the van completely died. Instead of pulling to the side of the street away from traffic, Paulie decided to just leave the car in the middle of the street, right off the FDR exit. He stopped the car and took the keys out of the ignition. Thick white smoke was still pouring out of the engine. It turned out that because Paulie had left the car running for about two hours while he took a nap, he must have overheated the engine in his old 1988 conversion van. Before I could ask him what we were going to do now, I looked over, and he was once again fast asleep. I thought to myself, what the hell kind of freak is this? How could he fall asleep in the middle of the street while his van was overheating? I shook him and asked him, now what do we do? He replied, we have to wait for the engine to cool down, then we can try again. He then put his head back and went to sleep as if he was comfy in his bed. About 45 minutes later, we tried the engine again, to no avail. Now it was getting close to mid-morning and cars were zipping around us and honking since we were blocking one whole lane off the exit. Even though it's not wise, Paulie decided he would pour water on the engine to speed up the process. It worked, but only temporarily. We finally got off the exit and drove about another 20 blocks when that white smoke began pouring out once again. This process would go on for the next few hours. Every 20 blocks or so, the engine would overheat, Paulie would pour water on it, and we would drive a little more. The van finally completely died at around 7 a.m. We had made it to 14th Street, and with the van full of gear and completely dead, I had no other option. 
I didn't know the guys in Kiss Nation well enough to just leave my drums in their broken down van like Paulie suggested. Actually, I did know Paulie well enough after the last five hours to know there was no way in hell I was leaving my drums in his care. He was liable to fall asleep again and have someone steal all of the gear right from under his nose. I decided I would hail a few taxi cabs and load everything into them. This was just about the time when the small minivan taxis were starting and I was able to get two of those to fit all of my gear. I would have to take it all to my tiny apartment in Manhattan and carry it all the way up the three flights of stairs. That wasn't the part that bothered me the most. If I'd known that this was going to be the final outcome, I could have avoided the last five hours with Paulie and just taken a cab right after the show. Once I was loaded into the taxis, I asked Paulie, what are you going to do now? He said, I'm not sure. I guess I'll wait a little while and see if it starts again. I got in the taxi and headed home. As I was pulling away, I glanced back at Paulie in the van and saw that he had already fallen back to sleep. This was the end of my first adventure with Paulie Z. Unfortunately, there would be many more to come. My second Kiss Nation show would be in Ohio on November 15, 2001. Kiss Nation would fly me out because I had a prior commitment and couldn't drive with them. I was to be godfather to my brother's daughter, Samantha, and the christening was on the morning of the show in Ohio. I would have to baptize my niece, go to the after party, and then go straight to the airport. Flying during this time was a bit challenging. It was right after the terror attacks on 9-11, and the airports had a very tight security. Because I was on a strict time constraint, I wouldn't be able to check a bag. I would just be making the gig as it was, so I didn't have time to wait for my bag in Ohio. I packed my costume, makeup, and a change of clothes in my carry-on bag, and that was it. When I went through the security check at the airport, I was flagged and called over by security. They opened my bag and began examining my makeup. I tried to explain to them that I was in a KISS tribute band, but they weren't listening. They examined every inch of my bag and closely looked at my makeup, which I happened to be carrying in my 1978 KISS lunchbox. After about a 20-minute detainment, they finally let me board the plane. The third show with KISS Nation was a tribute to Eric Carr's show at the Chance Theater in Poughkeepsie. I couldn't have asked for a better experience than to pay tribute to my idol and to one of the main reasons I played drums. I now was sure that joining Kiss Nation was the right move for my career. Even though I knew that a tribute band was a dead end, it just felt right to be doing what I loved doing. Dressing as Eric Carr and playing Kiss songs every night gave me a strange sense of fulfillment and joy that I wasn't getting with Valentine Smith. Before the Eric Carr tribute show, we met with Eric's sister Loretta. She was the host for the event and she wanted to meet us and show her gratitude for playing the show in honor of her brother. She was a sweetheart and I was very happy to meet her. I didn't know it then, but years later we would work together to bring to life one of her brother's dream projects, the animated show, The Rockheads. Here's the theme song for The Rockheads that I wrote with Eric's sister Loretta for the TV show. Sure, hope we could get to the show. There's always something that gets in our way. No worries, Ruffy. What could possibly go wrong? Hey! Oh no! Here we go again! 
Things were going great with Kiss Nation. I was having a fun time and I couldn't have been happier. Shortly after the Eric Carr tribute show, we got invited by Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley to appear at Tower Records for the official Kiss box set release. My mind once again was blown. Gene and Paul knew us enough to invite us to help promote their new box set. I had never met anyone in KISS, and this would be my chance to not only meet them, but to be working alongside them to help promote and advertise their new product. The day of the Tower Records event was surreal. The KISS camp put us up at the Gramercy Hotel in downtown Manhattan. We were to get in makeup and costumes there and then walk over to Tower Records. Once we arrived, it was pandemonium. I hadn't yet experienced a real, full-on KISS crowd while we were in full gear. They went absolutely wild when they saw us, especially because I was Eric Carr. I always felt that me being Eric Carr was more of a tribute to a fallen hero of mine than it was me impersonating someone. The other guys dressing as Gene, Paul, and Ace always would seem like a cheap imitation of the real thing. But because Eric was no longer with us, people had a different kind of affection and appreciation towards me portraying him. When I finally got to meet Gene and Paul, I think they had the same feeling. They seemed a little weirded out by Carlos and Paulie dressing as them, but they had a sense of gratitude when they talked to me about being Eric. It was as if they were seeing their long-lost friend again when they saw me. It was very overwhelming. I had grown up my whole life idolizing Gene and Paul, and now I was working side-by-side side with them, and they seemed to really appreciate me being Eric. This wasn't one of my frozen moments, but I did realize that something special had happened to me that night. Shortly after the Tower Records appearance, Gene asked us to appear with him to help promote his new book, Kiss and Makeup. This was all still pretty crazy for me. Gene Simmons of KISS was personally requesting us to appear with him to help promote his book. It was as if it wasn't reality. I know this wasn't the fame and fortune that I'd always wanted, but I still thought it was pretty damn cool that I was able to hang out with one of my childhood idols. In a strange way, it made me want to become his peer and equal more than ever. Even though I had a passion and love for KISS, I never viewed myself as a fanboy. I would never ask them for an autograph or anything like that. It was just weird to me. What I wanted was for them to see me play the drums and for them to think I was good. That's the type of fan I was. I wanted to play with KISS. I didn't want their autograph. The KISS and Makeup book signing event with Gene went great. He was kind and appreciative to us throughout the day. He invited us to the after party at a club called Spa in the West Village. We never ran into Gene at the after party, but we did run into a mega Kiss fan that went absolutely bonkers when he saw us. It was none other than Sebastian Bach from the band Skid Row. Sebastian had been a huge Kiss fan all of his life, and he immediately recognized that we were in the Creatures of the Night era costumes. He went nuts when he saw me as Eric Carr. He said, holy shit, dude. You look exactly like Eric. I never got to see him in makeup. This is so effing cool. He wanted pictures with us and we started to hang and drink with him all night. It was a pretty fun and wild night. Chapter 18. Stop chasing and let it come to you. So, 2002 started with me not having an original band to work with. 
This was the first stretch of time since I was about 14 years old that I wasn't in an original band. The weirdest part about it was that I was totally okay with it. I was having so much fun with Kiss Nation that I didn't miss the everyday grind and business of an original band. It was nice to take a break from the world of trying everything in your power to get signed by a record label every waking moment. With Kiss Nation, all I had to do was have fun playing my drums again, and that was refreshing. In May of 2002, Kiss Nation was invited to play the Puerto Rican Kiss Expo. Kiss drummer Eric Singer was going to be the special guest. Of course, we all jumped at the opportunity. Not only were we going to Puerto Rico with all expenses paid, but we got to hang out with Eric Singer all weekend. This was the trip that really made me feel comfortable with the guys in Kiss Nation. To say we bonded during this adventure is an understatement. Growing up in New York City, it was always common to rank on each other. All that really meant was that boys usually busted each other's balls as much as they possibly could. The classics were always to either make fun of someone's mother or to pick on some physical attribute that you knew bothered that person. Where I grew up in Brooklyn and with the friends that I had, I became a pretty masterful ball buster over the years. Being that I was still kind of the new guy in Kiss Nation, I hadn't felt completely comfortable enough around the other guys to really let loose. Carlos and Ruby had been together for years and even Paulie had been with them for a good six months before I joined. They were all very comfortable with each other and would constantly break each other's balls, mine included. When they busted my balls, I would always just tap my head and say, okay, I'm storing all of this stuff in my file cabinet to use at a later date. They would laugh it off like it was just me not being able to come back with anything. They had no idea who they were dealing with. I could tell that Paulie and Ruby were probably nerdy kids growing up. I recognized the tendencies a mile away. They were both quick to put someone down or try to make themselves look good, which to me were all signs of someone being insecure. Carlos was a little more like me. I had a huge group of friends that were all master ball busters. I had years and years of practice doing what Paulie and Ruby probably just started doing since they began to play in a band. I was just waiting for the right moment to unleash. And that day came during the first day of our Puerto Rico Kiss Nation trip. Once we landed and settled in at our hotel in San Juan, we were scheduled for a full day of press all over Puerto Rico in full makeup and costume. Our first stop was Telemundo. After that, we headed to the Hard Rock Cafe to meet with Kiss drummer Eric Singer for a small press outing to promote the Kiss Expo the next day. After a few photos, Eric suggested that we all hang out and have lunch. This was our first time meeting Eric and he seemed really friendly and down to earth. But this was at the time when he was also a little bit bitter at Kiss. Eric was asked to rejoin the band in 2001 after Peter Chris tried to hold out for more money to do the tour of Japan. Kiss called Peter's bluff and decided to put Eric Singer in the Catman makeup. Shortly after the Japanese tour, Kiss decided to do a show in Australia with the Australian Symphony Orchestra for a new live DVD and album. The only problem was that Kiss decided to ask Peter to do the show instead of Eric. There still remains much speculation about why Kiss did this. I always assumed it was because they wanted to make sure they were able to play their biggest hit single, Beth, which Peter sang and wrote with the full orchestra. Eric was bitter with Kiss for asking Peter back, and we could all tell by the way he was talking. It wasn't anything in particular, 
but he just had a sour vibe about Gene and Paul at this time. One thing he said did annoy me a little bit. We were discussing the era that Kiss Nation was representing, Creatures of the Night, and he made a snide remark about Eric Carr. I asked him what he thought of Carr's drumming, and he said, He was okay. I just never understood why he used gloves. What were his hands too fragile? I guess he was trying to make a joke, but he just seemed almost jealous of Carr in a way. Other than that, Eric was fun to be around all weekend. After we finished lunch, we noticed a giant two-foot ice cream sundae over at the next table. Paulie's eyes lit up excitedly and said, We should get one of those for our table. To which Eric Singer responded, It looks like you don't need a sundae. And then he pointed to Paulie's love handles. They were sticking out due to the nature of Paul Stanley's costume he was wearing, which was basically a belly shirt. Paulie's mood and demeanor immediately changed. Up until this point, Paulie was as chipper and giddy as I'd ever seen him. He was definitely the fanboy type. He was so excited and happy to be having lunch with Eric Singer, we thought nothing could bring him down. Boy, were we wrong. Paulie's shoulders began to slouch, his head went back, and his neck crawled into his torso like a turtle. He then began to actually pout. Carlos asked, Jig, what the hell is wrong with you? Paulie then responded in a feeble, pouting voice. The Eric Singer called me fad. I'm not sure why Paulie addressed him as the Eric Singer, but it just added to the hilarity of the story. He looked like someone had just run over his dog with a car. We thought he was going to start crying at any second. This was the opening I'd been waiting for. I relentlessly ripped into him about Eric Singer making fun of his love handles. I had the whole table, including Eric, in tears with laughter. All the while, Paulie was cowering lower and lower in his seat. Ball breaker Joey had arrived. After lunch, Paulie pulled me aside outside of the Hard Rock Cafe to explain to me why he was so upset. I pretended to be deeply concerned as I listened to his heartfelt story. Paulie proceeded to confide in me that when he was younger, his father and many other people used to call him Fat Boy. I held in my laughter and excitement about hearing this new development and said, Paulie, that's horrible. Tell me more. Paulie told me a few other childhood stories, and then we went back inside to join the other guys. Before we got within 10 feet of them, I blurted out while I was laughing, Guys, Paulie's dad used to call him Fat Boy. I tried to restrain myself, but I just couldn't hold back this spectacular information. This absolutely crushed Paulie. He had confided in me and I had betrayed him. The real Paulie was beginning to show his face. We found out rather quickly that he could dish it out, but he couldn't take it. That was the first rule of trash talk. If you dish it out, which Paulie did, you better be able to take it. The second rule was, don't sell it, which was an old wrestling phrase that I used all the time. All it meant was that if someone said something that bothered you, you shouldn't let on that it bothered you because that gave them ammunition against you. If you didn't sell it or let it bother you, then they had nothing they could use. Paulie was definitely selling this. The next day we went to lunch before getting ready for our appearance and performance at the expo that evening. Our tour guide, Jose, took us to a small restaurant off the beaten path. It was a real local place in the middle of nowhere. 
Paulie was still in a sour mood from all the shenanigans that went on the day before, and he wouldn't stop talking about it. Finally, Jose, who had been very quiet up until this point, asked Paulie, You know what they call that, right? Paulie said, Call what? Jose responded, They call those chichos. Then he grabbed Paulie's love handles. This sent Paulie into a frenzy. He jumped up and proclaimed that he couldn't take it anymore and that he was quitting the band and leaving. He proceeded to leave the restaurant and walk down the lone dirt road to nowhere. As he was walking and got further and further away, we just laughed harder and harder. We could almost hear the theme song from the old Incredible Hulk TV show playing while he walked that lonely road. Of course, Paulie didn't quit. We picked him up about a mile down the road and we headed back to the Hard Rock to get ready. But he was still quite upset. While we were getting ready, he wandered off for a little bit. Carlos and I had to use the restroom and what we found inside was the final straw. Paulie had Eric Singer cornered in the restroom, pinned up against the urinal trying to explain to him that Eric had hurt him so much by calling him fat. The sight of Paulie who was about 6'3", looking down on Eric Singer, who was about 5'6", was absolutely comical. Eric looked terrified. We quickly came to his rescue and pulled Paulie out of there. Eric must have felt bad because later on when we were getting dressed in our dressing room and putting on our costumes, he came in to hang out. He proceeded to tell Paulie all of the tricks that Paul Stanley used to hide his gut. He showed him how Paul would use double-sided tape to keep his belt piece over his love handles. Paulie couldn't believe it. He said with a slight stutter and quiver in his lip, you, you mean that Paul Stanley needs help hiding his love handles too? This somehow made Paulie feel better that his hero and idol suffered from the same problem he did. I realized during the Kiss Nation trip to Puerto Rico that Paulie Z was a real mental case. The show at the expo went great. I later heard from the person who ran the expo that Eric Singer was really impressed with my drumming and said I was easily the best drummer in any tribute band he'd ever seen. Now I just needed to get Gene and Paul to see me play one day. In the late summer, early fall of 2002, Kiss Nation was approached by VH1 to film the pilot episode of a new show they were developing called Mock Rock. It was a reality show about tribute performers. We, of course, accepted. I knew that there was a very low ceiling for a tribute band and that I couldn't fulfill my dreams playing other people's music. But these amazing opportunities were impossible to pass up, and I was enjoying the great run we were having. The plan was for VH1 to follow us around in our everyday lives to see what kind of people we were and then focus on what kind of planning and hard work it took to put on a tribute show. I wasn't really into them filming my private life at home. My mom was starting to get really sick at this time and her breathing was getting worse and worse and I didn't think it was a good idea. Instead, I just had them follow me on a few drum lessons that I did. Looking back, I wish I had let them film my mom for the show. It would have been so great to have her talking about me growing up as a KISS fan on the TV show. It was pretty fun filming. I had never done anything like this at this point 
and I was really enjoying it. We had the film crew and main producer Angela follow us to our gigs and to an appearance at the New York, New Jersey Kiss Expo. They filmed our every move. Footage from our dressing room when we were applying our makeup always wound up being the best content. Because the four members of Kiss Nation were all different ethnicities, Carlos was Puerto Rican, Ruby was Indonesian, Paulie was Jewish, and I was Italian, somehow the conversation always turned racist. Now when I say racist, I mean in a joking manner towards each other. After our Puerto Rico trip when I finally unleashed my ball-breaking abilities, I became the lead dog when it came to trash talk. Because of this, the cameras always seemed to fall on me. The only problem we were having was that the producer Angela kept telling us that the footage was hysterical, but they couldn't use most of it because we were either cursing or being too racist. We just couldn't help ourselves. We loved to bust each other's balls. After a few months of filming, we were invited to Los Angeles by VH1 to attend a screening party for Mock Rock. It would be held at the world-famous Whiskey A Go-Go on the Sunset Strip. We were also scheduled to do a special performance at the event. I had never been to L.A. and was super excited to play the whiskey where all the famous L.A. bands got their start, like Van Halen, Motley Crue, and Rat. If they were a big rock band in the 80s, chances are they started at the whiskey. Again, I knew that we were just a dopey tribute band, but we were doing some really cool stuff. The trip to L.A. was an absolute blast. All of the shenanigans that went on in Puerto Rico carried over. Paulie was a little thicker skinned at this point, and the ribbing was more evenly distributed. I fell in love with LA right away, and being flown out by VH1 to screen our very own TV show made it extra special. And all of this because I played drums and I loved Kiss. One of the very first things I saw in LA when we were at the Whiskey was singer Avril Lavigne riding down the street on her skateboard. I know what you're thinking, big deal. But at the time, Avril had a huge song called Skater Boy, and it was just wild seeing her riding her skateboard on Sunset Strip like any other regular kid. L.A. was just like that. VH1 put us up at the Beverly Hills Hotel. It was one of the best hotels in L.A., and it was where all the TV, movie, and rock stars stayed. We felt pretty cool walking in. We weren't just a tribute band anymore. When someone asked who we were, we could legitimately say we were a band filming a special for VH1. Pretty cool. On the day of the party, we would get to the whiskey early for a sound check. It felt magical as soon as I got on that stage, much like years earlier when I played Lamore with Playground. The whiskey was the West Coast version of Lamore, only even bigger. The party was to be mid-afternoon. VH1 told us that for our performance, they were going to have the club open to the public early so that we got a good-sized crowd. They told us that the screening would shortly follow after the performance. We finished setting up and did the sound check at around 2.15, with the performance scheduled to be around 3.30. It was time to start the hour-long process of applying the makeup. Periodically, we would peek downstairs to see if the club was filling up yet, but it was completely dead every time we checked. We were a little bummed, but still happy to be at the Whiskey and for the screening of our new TV show after the performance. Our roadie slash tour manager slash photographer, Victor Lim, always introduced the band, and this night would be no exception. 
As we waited in the dressing room, which was on the second floor of the whiskey, we heard that familiar battle cry. You wanted the best? You got the best. The hottest band in the world. Kiss Nation. When we emerged from the dressing room to take the stage, the scene was quite different than we last checked. The whiskey was now packed from door to door. We couldn't believe our eyes. What happened? Not only was it packed, but it was with young people and pretty girls. Which if you've ever been to a Kiss Nation show, or any tribute show for that matter, you'd know it's usually filled with older middle-aged people. We didn't have time to question our good fortune. We took the stage and exploded into our blistering Kiss show. The crowd was extra enthusiastic and we felt their energy. Not only were we playing at the infamous Whiskey A Go-Go, but the crowd was great. And we were there in honor of our brand new VH1 TV show. Things couldn't get any better. Or so we thought. Towards the end of our set, while we were playing the song Lick It Up, I noticed Carlos acting a little overly excited. I then glanced at Paulie and he also looked a little giddy. Carlos then came close to the drums and mouthed, Look up! And then he pointed. I was still a little confused and didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. Then I saw Ruby pointing up towards the balcony where a spotlight had just come on. Under that spotlight stood none other than Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley of KISS. Wow! One of my childhood dreams was coming true right before my eyes. All of a sudden, I look and through the smoke and through the lights, I see Gene Simmons. I'm sure to everybody, my real face came right through the makeup. Carlos is coming over. He's like, he's like, Paulie, look in the look in the balcony. Carlos looked at me. Look at the balcony. And like an idiot, I looked at the other end of the balcony. My eyes scoped to the other end. I'm like, oh. And I felt like I was five years old, and I actually had to almost stop playing, and I bowed. I was just like... Then I saw Foley going crazy, Carlos going crazy, everyone started going nuts. I can't even describe the kind of feeling that is, you know, to know that they're there, your heroes, the ones you're working so hard for. That was great! That The moment began to freeze as I watched Gene and Paul smile down on me. For so many years and countless times, these roles were reversed. I had always been the one watching them on stage performing, whether it was the first time when I was five years old at Madison Square Garden or the time when Jimmy and O'Grady and I took the Port Authority bus by ourselves when we were 13 years old to go see Kiss at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. I had always been the one in the audience watching Gene and Paul. Now, Gene and Paul were watching me play my drums to their songs. I smiled in that frozen moment like I had never smiled before. As I slowly let the moment slip back into real time, I noticed the other guys in the band grinning from ear to ear. We finished Lick It Up with a bang and only had the rock and roll national anthem left to do. Paulie quickly took the mic and preached while he looked up at Gene and Paul. Besides my bar mitzvah, this is the greatest fucking day of my life. I gotta say, next, next to my bar mitzvah, this has gotta be the best day of my life. That put a huge smile on Gene and Paul's face, and we blasted into rock and roll all night. 
That sounds pretty good. good. Yeah. singer sounds pretty good. I got news for you from the side that looks like you. <laughs> Unbelievable. The guy makes faces like Ace. The guy's making Ace's faces. That's kind of Ace thing. Wow, the guy looks just like Eric. He really does. Features Eric Costa. 1981. It's funny, the jean guy has his hair the same length Gene did, yeah, wide that, on the side. It's that perfect Jewish afro. <laughs> the crowd went berserk. We never had more fun playing that song than we did on that night. Somewhere towards the end of the song, it became a little unhinged due to all of our excitement. We got completely turned around at the end of the song, and I had to quickly play an odd time measure to sync us back up. It worked, and we ended right on target. As soon as we ended, Gene and Paul came on stage to greet us and shake our hands. Paul then grabbed the microphone and said, If we ever decide not to go on tour, we'll just send these guys in our place. Maybe if we have any thoughts of going out on tour, we'll stay home. We'll send these guys out. Gene then came over to me and said, what a great job I did saving the ending by flipping it back around. I couldn't believe it. Not only had he heard what happened, he recognized and complimented how I fixed the problem. Shortly after we got off stage, we went back to our dressing room and started high-fiving and hugging each other. We couldn't believe what was happening. Gene and Paul joined us a few moments later with the VH1 crew filming everything. They told us the whole story on how VH1 had contacted them and that they had watched a video of ours and absolutely loved it. We talked with them for about a half an hour about everything from our performance to Gene making fun of Carlos's hair. Even Gene and Paul got in on the Kiss Nation ball busting. My hair is a little bit different than that. No, no, now it is. <laughs> I've studied those two days. Just put the relaxer on. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy Thayer, who years later would replace Ace Freely on guitar, was with Gene and Paul filming every move. Back then, Tommy was in charge of a lot of Kiss's videography and producing their DVDs. Paul then told me that he couldn't believe not only how much I looked like Eric Carr, but how much I played and sang just like him. And he sounds like Eric. I mean, when he's playing the drums and when he's singing. It was probably the greatest compliment I'd ever gotten in my life. To have one of my idols not only see me pay tribute to my drumming idol, Eric Carr, but to then say that I played just like him was absolutely amazing. We were talking before about how details really aren't that important. It really is about the spirit. And you guys have the details and the spirit, so it was really very cool to watch. Gene and Paul then bid farewell, and we were left to ponder what had just taken place. Angela, our producer, came in to talk with us about everything that had just happened. She informed us that there was actually no screening for the show at all. The whole L.A. trip was a trick to get us to play in front of Gene and Paul as a surprise ending for the pilot episode of Mock Rock. 
Even the audience turned out to be actors and extras that were hired just to film the show. We couldn't believe it. What a great way to end an amazing trip and amazing time filming for VH1. The whole experience had been one of my favorites of my life. Unfortunately, Kiss Nation's episode of Mock Rock never officially aired on VH1. The show didn't get picked up for series and they shelved the pilot. Luckily, they sent us the final cut to see and keep for ourselves. It turned out amazing and it's one of the things I most cherish having done. It was my first real taste of filming and acting and it provided me great preparation for so many things to come. 